Revelation chapter number 19 is where we're at tonight. We actually started this outline uh, two weeks ago uh, prior to spring break. And uh, tonight, just uh, for those that were not here and just for reiteration of those that were here, we're just going to kind of breeze through uh, the very first part of it and get to our second point. We just finished the first point um, a couple weeks ago, the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Uh, but for uh, review process, uh, we're just going to read through the outline until we get to uh, point number two, all right? Uh, so right at the top there, Revelation chapter 19, and uh, let's just read real fast uh, Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse number one, uh, down to verse number eight, uh, where it'll take us uh, to the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia. Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen and Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God. All ye his servants and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, a voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she would be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So... We have uh, Revelation chapter 19. Now, we talked about that uh, Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 18 are a parenthesis uh, with the fall of Great Babylon. And so when we get to chapter 19, we have to, go, we have to rewind all the way back to chapter 16 and remind ourselves that chapter 19 actually comes after chapter 16. And in chapter 19, we had the desolation of the earth and we had the preparation for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so chapter number 19 says in verse number 1, and after these things. And what are those things? Those are all the, the judgments that we uh, went through. We went through the seals, the seven seals. We went through the seven trumpets. And then we went through the seven vials of wrath. And so after all of that has come to pass, now we find ourselves uh, at a glorious state uh, in heaven here as we're talking about the rejoicing that's happening because Jesus Christ has won the victory. So right at the top of your outline, after the fall of ecclesiastical and commercial Babylon, there was a call to rejoice. And the opening verses in chapter 19 records a fourfold hallelujah response. The word hallelujah is the Greek form of the Hebrew word hallelujah and has identical meaning, which means praise the Lord. It, like amen, has become a universal word and is an acclamation of praise to God with the highest possible sense of reverence on praise. And we talked about that two weeks ago. And how that, when we get to heaven, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be rejoicing. We're going to be praising God. We're going to be worshiping Him. And so it's something that we should just get used to while we're down here on earth. The word hallelujah appears four times in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. But nowhere else in the New Testament do we find it. The only other place we find it is in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, there are four shouts of hallelujah. For the fall of Babylon, thus in stark contrast to the events on earth of torment, weeping and wailing, all heaven bursts forth in celebration and praise to God for the destruction of Babylon. If you remember, 
If we go back, we will learn that an innumerable number of people were saved during uh, the tribulation. And of course, even now, as we talk about from the beginning of time, literally another innumerable number of people have come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Can you imagine what heaven sounds like? Now, I've been to a lot of sporting events. Brother Mike's not here tonight, is he? Your husband, Mike Lee, is he here tonight? Is your husband? Okay. Good. Because um, the story I'm about to tell, he would be back there shouting hallelujah. Um, no game have I been, like, been to like the game I went to, the Georgia Tech-Florida State game. Hey, hey, hey. I was sitting in the stands. The place was packed just past year. And uh, Georgia Tech was the underdog. We went, I went, I purchased the tickets to go watch my Seminoles win. Fourth quarter. I know, he's not here, you're in his place. Fourth quarter, two seconds left in the game. And destruction breaks out for Florida State. (laughs) And I watched Wake Forest run that ball all the way into the end zone. I bet there was not a seat in the house that was empty during that game. That was the first football game my wife had ever attended, high school, college, anything. She's standing next to me on top of the bleachers. And we are actually, this is the honest truth, Scott was there, this is the honest truth, we were at the very top of the stadium. There was no other seats above us, okay? So it was like prime time looking. And when they scored... I'm talking the masses went to the field. I thought there was going to be trampling. I mean, I didn't know. Of course, I was brokenhearted, crying, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but you could not, literally, it was so loud in there. People screaming and hollering and rejoicing. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I love football, and, and putting my, my allegiances aside, this is probably the greatest football game and probably the greatest football game I'll ever be a part of. Now, at that very moment, though, as I look back on it, and I think about, I don't know how many people were there, but I think about how loud and how amazing and how exciting that was. And then you think about what heaven's going to be like. I mean, you multiply that literally probably by 100 million. And can you imagine everyone rejoicing as Jesus Christ is on the throne? What an amazing, amazing time that's going to be. So number one, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We talked about this last week. Verse number nine in uh, chapter number 19. And he saith unto me, right, blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit a prophecy. So the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to quickly go through this. Verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The New Testament has four analogies of Christ and the church. We broke those down, those analogies, last week. You can look them up. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, Ephesians chapter number 5, 1 Peter chapter number 2. And then, of course, as we move forward to the fourth analogy, uh, Ephesians chapter number 5, where we find the analogy of Jesus Christ 
uh, being the bridegroom and us being the bride. Uh, and so here's the analogy that we have as now we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't want you to think that uh, having a dinner after a marriage is something new. It's not. I mean, when the, when the bridegroom and the bride are joined together, there's going to be quite a marriage supper of the Lamb. And uh, that's going to take place here as we read about it in Revelation chapter number 19. Early in Jesus' earthly ministry, when he was asked why his disciples were not fasting, like the Pharisees and the followers of John the Baptist, Jesus gave a remarkable apply. And this is the analogy of the bride and the bridegroom. Matthew chapter 9 and verse number 15, Jesus saith unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. In other words, they were saying, why, why aren't your disciples fasting? Jesus said, because the bridegroom is with them. But one day it's going to come, and, and I'm not going to be with them anymore. And then they will fast, and then they will pray. That bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is, is now in heaven, and uh, he's waiting for that day when God the Father tells him to go get his bride, and we will be caught up together to be with the Lord Forever. The array of the bride is described in Revelation chapter 19, uh, 7, the B part of the verse, to verse number 8. The delicate balance between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of the believers is made clear in the two phrases, where it says that hath made herself, talking about the bride, ready, and to her was granted. So we've made ourselves ready, and to her was granted. That's literally the sovereignty of God. The church's garments are fine linen, clean and white, in contrast to the clothing of the great mother of prostitutes who was arrayed in purple and scarlet color. The bride's clothing is explained as righteousness of the saints in chapter 19 and verse number 8. The Greek word translated righteousness is in the plural and is translated righteous deeds. This means the wedding garment will be made up of the righteous deeds performed in life. You say, Pastor, how does all that work? I'm not exactly sure. Um, but I do know that based upon the, 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 the Greek translation that this bridegroom, this garment, will be made up of the righteous deeds that were performed in life. It's important that we note, and we're going to talk about this again in just a moment, but it's important that we note our righteous deeds do not in, get us a, a pass into heaven. The only thing that gets us into heaven is the blood of Jesus Christ. But the deeds that we do on earth after salvation, they do matter. The things that we do matter in eternity. And that's why the Bible tells us that we should find our place in the body of Christ. And that's why the Bible tells us that we should be busy doing the work of the Lord. Because our deeds for Christ certainly do matter. This does not imply a work salvation. I want you to really get this because this is probably the best defense to whether or not we have to work our way to heaven or whether or not it's given to us by a free gift of Jesus Christ. This is probably the best defense that there possibly is. Um, it does not imply a work salvation, but rather a delicate balance between God's grace and our obedient response to it. How do I know that? Because the bride, the Bible says, is given the wedding garment. You see that? But she has to make herself ready. You see, Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross, right? But he cannot force us to be saved. We have to make our own selves ready. By the way, 
there, there's a, um, it's not new, uh, but there is a, a camp uh, that, and, and it's becoming stronger and stronger in the end days, that talks about household salvation. How many of you have ever heard that term, household salvation? Anybody? Just one, okay. Household salvation says this, that as long as mom or dad is saved, that everybody in the family, no matter how many children you have, no matter what, they're automatically saved. Salvation is not a corporate event. Salvation is a personal event. Do you understand that? Just because I'm the pastor of North Point Baptist Church doesn't mean that Samuel, Gideon, and Matt and I are automatically going to heaven. Do you understand that? What, what, what does that mean, Pastor? That means I have the responsibility to teach my children, what? That they are sinners. And that they need a savior. And uh, that, that, I, that they need to be seeing that need. And then the Holy Spirit of God can work within them so they see their need for salvation. And then they come to accept him. Just as it is with anybody else. You see, the bride is given the wedding garment, but they have to make themselves ready. Verse 9 contains the fourth of seven Beatitudes found in the book of Revelation. Blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. The other Beatitudes are listed there for you starting in chapter 1 and verse number 3. Blessed are those who read and uh, study the word, uh, excuse me, study the uh, book of Revelation for they shall be blessed. The marriage of the Lamb is mentioned in verse 7 and the marriage supper uh, is here in verse 9. The supper followed the wedding and apparently all the hosts of heaven were involved to join the celebration. The certainty of this beatitude is emphasized by the phrase, these are the true sayings of God. In chapter number 19 and verse number 9, John is so overwhelmed by the angel's revelation of the marriage of the Lamb that he fell at his feet to worship him. And this is where everything changes. The angel quickly said, See thou do it not. Don't worship me as an angel. And then informed John that as an angel, he is a fellow servant and not to be worshipped. Indeed, worship belongs exclusively to who? God. Exclusively to God. We are not to bow down and worship anyone or anything except him. By the way, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, um, that, the, that you have something and you experience something that the angels can't even experience, and that's salvation. The Bible says that the angels rejoice at one soul being saved. Why do they rejoice? They rejoice because of the Savior. They rejoice because of the sacrifice. They don't understand the change because, you see, they don't have a soul. We rejoice because we've been changed. We rejoice because of the Savior and because our life has taken 180 degree directional change from sin uh, to life in Jesus Christ. And uh, so worship belongs only to Jesus. Don't ever, don't ever uh, uh, worship anyone or anything other than him. We also find in chapter 19 and verse number 10. What all true, true prophecy is about, all true prophecy is about the testimony of Jesus Christ. When we started this study back in September, um, I told you this, that no matter what we study, no matter how much we learn about the end times, no matter how much we learn about prophecy, no matter how much we learn about revelation, none of it matters if what? Jesus is not the central focus. You see, Jesus is the reason that we have the book of Revelation Jesus is the reason that we're excited about our future. It's not because we understand more about what's happening. It's because we understand more about our Savior. Number two, this is where we stopped last week. The second coming. 
of Christ. The second coming of Christ. I want you to take your Bibles, Revelation chapter 19. We're going to start reading in verse number 11. Revelation chapter 19, verse number 11. The Bible says this. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. We found out why that was important, didn't we? You remember? He didn't have seven crowns. He doesn't have one crown, as was described by the false prophet and the beast. He has many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called what? The Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with, uh, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of the Almighty God. Verse 16. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, what? King of kings and Lord of lords. That's right. So number two, the second coming of Christ. This event is the very pinnacle of all history. The climactic event toward which all history has been moving. For centuries, people have been asking, where is the promise of his coming? As Second Peter chapter 3 and verse number 4 says, well, here it is. This is, in fact, the second coming, where we find the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, we talk about the difference between the rapture and the second coming. When was Jesus' first coming? When he was born. In order, to, in order for it to be a first coming, his feet actually had to touch the earth. In the rapture, the Bible says that he'll be in the clouds. That is, the, that is a rapture event. And then the tribulation takes place. The second coming is at this very moment where his feet will once again touch the earth. This is the very pinnacle of all history. The second coming has been confusing to many people because the New Testament says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 17 that believers will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And that's what we're talking about with the rapture. However, we find the second coming of Christ described in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. And we also find in the New Testament in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The Bible says in Zechariah chapter number 14, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations. And when he fought in the day of the battle, and his feet shall stand in that day upon what? The Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove the earth. And half of it toward the, or excuse me, shall remove toward the north. And half of it toward the south. Meaning that the valley would open up. And of course the battle of Armageddon would take place. So here we have uh, his feet hitting the ground. The second coming of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter number 1. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand you here gazing into heaven? The same Jesus is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in what? Aha. Like manner as you have seen him go in to heaven. That is the second coming 
of Jesus Christ. The reason for the two different descriptions is really, in in part, the second coming will take uh, place in two different parts. The first is called the rapture. When the church is caught up from the earth to meet the Lord in the air. Now, just to reiterate, we believe that the rapture will take place in which part of the tribulation? Before, that's right. According to Revelation chapter number 4, we go through the church age, and then Revelation chapter number 4, the church is raptured out. The tribulation occurs, uh, and we are in heaven during this time. And then with the second coming uh, is when we come back to earth with our Lord. So the church is caught up in the rapture uh, before the tribulation. Shortly after that, the great tribulation begins. And at the end of the tribulation, the second part of the second coming, often called the revelation. When we talk about uh, the second coming where Jesus, is Christ, Jesus Christ will actually come to the earth, it is many times called the revelation. At this point, Christ will actually return all the way to earth. Describing the second coming, John says in Revelation 19, 11, and I saw heaven what? Opened. This is going to be an amazing scene. It really is. And a rider on a white horse who is none other than Jesus himself. And what a, what a powerful, powerful moment. Because if you remember, the last animal that Jesus Christ rode before he died was what? A donkey. That's what people remembered him as. But now he's going to come back on a what? A white horse. That's right. Powerful. Powerful. A white horse with a rider also appeared in Revelation chapter 6 and verse number 1. We talked about that. But the similarity between the two riders end right here. Many times people uh, confuse Revelation chapter 6, verse number 1. They confuse that rider with Jesus Christ. We know, in fact, that is not Jesus Christ. That is the Antichrist. Um, And uh, he was the Antichrist who came with empty promises and he unjustly made war. The rider in chapter 19 is called what? Faithful and true. Faithful and true. And by the way, can I tell you something? He's always faithful and true. He's always faithful and true. The eyes is a flame of fire. Definitely connect him with John's vision of Christ in chapter number 1. On his head are not just seven crowns, as was mentioned in chapter 12 and verse number 3, or ten, as was mentioned in chapter 13 and verse number 1, but many crowns, chapter number 19 and verse number 11. You know why? Because he's the king of kings. He's the king of kings. That's right. Verse 12 also said he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. It's interesting to note uh, here that if you remember a few chapters ago that uh, we're going to be given a what? Do you remember? A new name. That's right. That no man knows. It's kind of amazing. And now Jesus has a name which no man knows. And it's almost as if God is just waiting for us uh, to get to heaven to reveal so much more to us than we could ever imagine. As we as we worked our way through the book of Revelation, we have found mysteries that cannot be explained, at least with my own uh, finite mind, cannot be explained. But Jesus has got a plethora of information and things that he has planned for us and, and amazing uh, uh, events and amazing uh, 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 heaven and earth, new heaven and new earth that we cannot even explain or understand. And it all starts with the name. It all starts with the name. A new name. What an amazing, amazing thought. 
Now, uh, perhaps the secret name is one used in verse 13 called the Word of God, or the name used in verse 16, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But on the other hand, it may be a name that will not be revealed until Christ returns. Comparing this description of the armies that followed Christ in verse 14 with verse 8, we as Christians make up the heavenly army. This is one thing I'm glad about, though, is that I make up the heavenly army, but I don't have to worry about fighting. Right? I'm in the heavenly army as an observer because the captain's on the white horse. Right? And he's got, he's got the plan. I love how the Bible describes, uh, and, and I've always said that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Uh, the Bible talks about that, that he has a sword with him, and that is literally his words. And the Bible tells us that the word of God is a what? Two-edged sword. Can I tell you something that I don't think we quite understand and can conceive? Is that this, that we literally have the same power that God has within the word of God. You say, wait a minute, Pastor. You, You just threw me a loop there for a moment. Listen, can I trust God in everything that I do? Is that Bible his? Can I believe everything that's in that Bible? So if I believe everything that's in that Bible, and it's literally the words of Jesus Christ, if I claim those words in his name, then I have the same power. He's the one performing it. I'm the one trusting in his word. Does that make sense? Because that's the sword. That's the sword that he has given to us. It's the power that he has given to us. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter number 1, and you shall receive the... Oh, let's turn there. Come on. (laughs) Acts chapter number 1. It's very important. Acts chapter number 1, verse number 8. I'd quote it to you, but it's better if you you look at it with your own eyes. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. What's that? No, it's not Holy Spirit. Power. But you shall receive power. That word power, I've I've told you this before, that word power in the Greek is the word dynamos, which is where we get our uh, English word dynamite. The same power. He's given it to us. How did he give it to us? He gave it to us through the Holy Spirit. That's right. And so that's what we have. We just have to uh, uh, tap ourselves into it. We just have to get a hold of it and allow him, to let, uh, allow him to use us in our lives. The word armies is plural, indicating not only the army of saints, Jude chapter four, or excuse me, Jude verse 14 and 15, but also an army of mighty angels, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 7 through 9, it's a very interesting study if you look at the armies that are going to be uh, coming during the second coming uh, to be at the Battle of Armageddon. And uh, can I tell you, again, we are all just observers because Jesus Christ is the one who is going to get the victory. We read in verse 15 that by the power of the spoken word, not with his hand or with, his, or with bombs, he will destroy the armies of the earth. No, uh, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter number 11 and verse number 4, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with the, uh, 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 equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his and with the breath of his, he uh, will slay the wicked. 
Boy, there's power. Are you ready? There's power in the words of Jesus Christ. There's power in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ. By simply speaking, Jesus will smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. The voice that spoke and created the world in John chapter 1 and verse number 3. The voice that atoms and molecules obey will again speak. And the lost world will be unable to find any weapon on earth powerful enough to defend themselves against what? The word of God. The word of God. On his vesture dipped in blood and on his thigh was the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. At his second coming, the Lord Jesus will in reality be the indisputable king above all kings and Lord above all lords. And as I've entitled this lesson, he will be victorious alone. He will be, excuse the terminology, the last one standing. He will be victorious. And I've told you this before, the enemy knows this. The enemy knows Revelation chapter 19. That's why the enemy is so rampant and that's why he's so destructive Because he knows that his destruction is coming. And therefore we have to claim the name of Jesus Christ so that we can be victorious as well. Number three, the battle of Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon. Back to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 starting in verse number 17. This is what the Bible says. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, And the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Now, I want to stop there because I want you to fast forward for a moment. This is very interesting verbiage that Jesus Christ uses here. I want you to look what he says. He says, captains, kings, captains, mighty men, the horses... The flesh of all men, both free and bond. And then lastly, he says, both small and great. Now, I want you to look at Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 8. You said, Pastor, we're not to 21 yet, I know. But I want you to see it. He says in uh, chapter 21 and verse number 8, but the fearful and the unbelieving... The abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and sorcerers and idolatries and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is what? Second death. Now I want you to look at one other verse with me. Revelation chapter 20, verse number 12. And I saw the dead. What's the next two words? Small and great. Listen, look at me, church. There is going to be 
no rank when it comes to this. It doesn't matter if you were the president. It doesn't matter if you were the king. It doesn't matter if you were a pauper. It doesn't matter your status in life. The only thing that will matter at this moment is whether you've accepted or you've rejected. That's what it boils down to. That's what it boils down to. And I saw the dead, small and great. Look what it says, verse number 20, chapter 20, verse number 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before who? God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of what? And the dead were judged. Who's the dead? Everybody is now. We've gone through the battle of Armageddon. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. If you translate that word works, it means whether or not they accepted or they rejected. Listen, church, this is it. This is it. This is the moment that we all have to stand before God and give an account. The Battle of Armageddon. In chapter 19 and verse number 17, the Battle of Armageddon is called the Supper of the Great God. In contrast to the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, one supper describes the destruction and death of the enemies of Christ, and the other symbolizes the wonderful fellowship and destiny of believers in Christ. The fowls that fly in the midst of heaven are summoned to eat the kings of the flesh and the flesh of the captains and the flesh of the mighty men. This event cannot be understood unless we remember that in Revelation chapter number 16, verses 16 through 21, the armies of the world had gathered in Palestine to oppose the beast and his armies, but they apparently forgot the animosity toward each other, and then they unite to oppose Christ and his holy army. Remember, everyone rises up against Christ. They all join together to unite to try to defeat him. Remember, chapter 17 and 18 are an interlude explaining Babylon, her sins, and destruction. So the account of this event resumes in chapter 19 and verse number 17. It begins in chapter number 16, verses 16 through 21, when all the nations were rising up against God, and they all decided to join together, and they all showed up uh, at this battle to fight against him. They're all there, and they'll all be defeated. The beast and the kings of the earth and their armies are powerless before the returning Christ. I love this. He simply speaks. He simply speaks and they are defeated. Why do you think it's so important that as, and I I know I say this all the time and it seems to be so elementary, but why do you think I say all the time that as Christians we need to read our Bibles and we need to pray? We need to have a relationship with God. Why? Because when he speaks, it is powerful. When he speaks, it's powerful. How does he speak? He speaks through his written word. And he speaks through communion and prayer. It's powerful. It's so powerful that it defeats all of the armies of the world. In verse 20... The beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. Um, so we, we read, um, let's see here, let me, let me go back here. Um, chapter number 19, 
um, in verse number 18. So let's now read verse 19 through 21. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him uh, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into what? The lake of fire, burning with fire and brimstone. Now, we talked about this, that the lake of fire is different than hell. Uh, hell is the holding place, literally, for those that are lost. That's, if someone has passed from this life to the next, they do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they are in hell. They will be resurrected out of hell uh, to the great white throne judgment, where they will be judged whether or not their name was written into the book of life. We'll find out that their name was not written in the book of life, and they will be cast into what? The lake of fire. What is the lake of fire? It burns with brimstone. And I want you to notice that they were cast, what's the next word in verse number 20? They were cast what? Alive. They were cast alive. I've heard people say, unfortunately, and I've even heard it on television and on the radio and other places, boy, it's just going to be a party in hell. Listen, I'm telling you right now, the lake of fire is not something that I would wish for my worst enemy. That's why it's so important that as Christians, that we go and tell. That we go and tell. Because people are going to experience this torment if they don't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And it's our job to tell them that there is hope. And that hope is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. But now I will tell you that Satan and all of his demons and all of his cohorts is exactly the reason there's the lake of fire. The lake of fire was not meant for anyone other than them. But at the same time I say that, every individual has to make a decision, whether to accept or to reject. And here we find that the end is really becoming more of a reality, as the Bible says that the beast and the false prophet were cast into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Verse 21, the Bible says, And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So in verse 20, the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire, burning with fire and brimstone. Verse 21 reveals that the remnant were slain by the word of the Lord. It appears the battle is over instantly with Jesus merely speaking the word, and then all the fowls are filled with their flesh. The curtain now falls on the most terrible events in human history as the judgment of God has been fully meted out upon the guilty planet. The terrible scene depicted in these verses may offend the sensibilities of those who think God, think of God as only loving and merciful. But as we've talked about so many times, the grace of God has been extended for so long. 
And as we've gone through this study, we've seen that even at different points throughout the the judgments that God once again extends His grace. But He is a God of love and mercy. But He's also a just God. And justice has to be served. The Lord is in fact the ultimate victor and we have nothing to be afraid of because he is for, he is for us, I should say us, and who can be against us. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful to have him on my side. Amen? I'm thankful that I'm a child of the king. And I'm thankful today as we read these last few chapters that literally... The enemy is going to be bound, and then he's going to be loosed for a season. But then we're going to find that his final destination is in the lake of fire as well. And then the new heaven and the new earth will take place, and it will be a glorious time. And as we read the next few chapters, literally our cry will be as the cry of even John himself, even so come quickly. But while we're still here on earth, we have a job to do. We have a mission, and our mission is to go ye, is to go, and to tell as many as we can. As the Bible says in the book of Jude, that that we literally are are pulling them from the fire. That's our job. It's to go and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for listening so well.